Welcome to the Hobcast Book Show, a weekly podcast from Hobeck Books, an independent publisher of thrillers, crime, mystery and suspense novels. Each week, we'll take you behind the scenes of what we do, the challenges and the triumphs, the bumps and troughs of running a creative business in this challenging world. We'll hear from the people who make this possible, the authors, the cover designers and editors, and we'll have expert insights from our guest star interviews. Nothing is off the agenda on the Hopcast Book Show from Hobet Books, as we combine trad values and an indie spirit. Welcome to the Hobcast Book Show, episode number 158. My name is Adrian Hobart. My name is Rebecca Collins. And together we run Hobeck Books, UK independent publishers, of the following four genres. Suspense. Mysteries. Crime. Sorry, I got a frog stuck then. (laughs) You did. And thrillers. (laughs) I I gave you my frog. Yeah, you did. You did. Anyway, welcome to the show. And our uh, guest this week is Daniela Blechner, who runs Conscious Dreams Publishing. We met her at uh, London Book Fair, you may remember, for those of you who are eagle ears. It was quite a while ago now, Yeah, it was a couple of years ago now, (laughs) uh, or 18 months ago or so. And uh, she runs a fantastic publishing company, which is literally bringing dozens of new voices from um, parts of the population that, that would never get a chance to be published including a number of books written by eight-year-olds, which is extraordinary. Um, so we'll be talking to Daniela about that later, or I'll be talking to Daniela about yes. that, because there is a slight difference in approach this week. You're too, well, we, we are yet to interview Daniela, yes. we ought to say as we record this. Uh, because, <laughs> We're doing things backwards, aren't we? <laughs> but you're not available for the the interview slot. No, so I'm travelling to um, High Wycombe tomorrow, of all places. So I've got a long journey and back again. Um, so number two son has got an interview at the University of Buckinghamshire um, and it's in person, which seems bonkers to me. But anyway, so I've got to drive him to High Wycombe for 11am and then we're going to drive back again. <laughs> Incredible, isn't it, in this day and age? I mean, my son now works in recruitment and... All of the interviews are conducted on Zoom. None of this in-person stuff. No, it's it's um, it depends on the industry, I think, and also, yeah, lots of factors. But yes, very often um, it's on Zoom because sometimes you have an interviewer based in different locations as well. So mm. it's not just about where the candidate is. Um, you know, well, they're not thinking about the envir- environmental impact of this. I mean, everyone, every other company seems to be thinking that way. Is it really worth the trip? Yeah. I mean, I've just got this fear that we'll turn up and they'll say, oh, we've sent you a Zoom link. (laughs) I would be really upset. Yeah, you'd be upset, but I wouldn't be surprised if something like that happened. Anyway, let's get into the news before we speak to Daniela. Um, And this one is an absolute doozy of a story in in my old journalism sort of thing. This is the sort of thing that really gets me. I like that word. Yeah, I mean, if if I'd been in my old job, this would have been gold. (laughs) Now, everyone, I mean, we've mentioned it a little because we don't really understand it. But book talk, which is to say the growth of uh, marketing through using TikTok, has become a really big engine in book sales, particularly for demographic 
a younger demographic than, say, I was going to say, it's not that we don't understand it. I, you know, I understand how BookTok works, but it it doesn't quite, it's not quite appropriate for our uh, market. No. So this is an extraordinary story, and this has two aspects to it. And the, the, the one is the sort of headline story about the hot water that one particular author has got himself into. Mm. The other is just uh, is the details of the sort of money that a book talk influencer can make by recommending a book, i.e. the publisher will pay them to say nice things. So here we go. This story is about an author who is a New York Times bestselling author, J.D. Barker, mm-hmm. who writes thrillers. And uh, this is what happened. J.D. Barker is facing a backlash after several TikTok creators said they had been encouraged to make sexually suggestive promotional videos for his upcoming erotic thriller. Sean Harper and Marissa Bologna, who are both parts of the literary community on the app known as BookTok, posted videos online to share concerns over the email from his public relations firm, which is owned by the author. So the email suggested that the creators show something racy and to use only the book to cover up your naughty bits. <laughs> Did it really use the word, the phrase naughty yeah, bits? Yeah, that's in quotes. Okay, okay. Right. That just sounds a very British 1970s <laughs> way of saying it. Go on. Right. Alongside the suggestions was a detailed pay scale offering up to $2,400 for videos posted by accounts with over 700,000 followers. And there's actually a long chart of the rising pay scale, depending on how many followers now, you have. You see, that's that's the bit that's the icky bit. I mean, it's icky. No, no, it's double icky. No, it's, it's icky enough to suggest it, but to put a payment to it as well. No, well, this is the, the so that's lifting the veil on what book talks all about, mm. first and foremost. But anyway, the email had been sent from a phone firm owned by Barker, who is a New York Times and international bestseller, in an attempt to promote his newest novel, Behind a Closed Door. Well, I've just promoted it, haven't I? Um, That's true. Yes, this is promoting it in a way. Well, in a way, yes. So he owns the company. Okay, that's the important detail here. Because in the backlash, his agent has now released J.D. Barker um, in the Ferrari. And J.D. Barker has defended what's happened by saying he wasn't aware of what the what his his team had done i find that a little difficult to comprehend personally that there was no awareness yes <laughs> um so one of the so uh, this is one of the um the the ladies in, in, in involved uh sean harper uh said this and i'm gonna have to sort of put asterisks against some of it go on then um i just got a predatory email from an author wanting me to promote their book they were even generous enough to give me ideas of what they, you might like to do for them. He's going to single-handedly review every video sent to him to make it sure it gets approved. This is creepy as F behaviour, and honestly, I'm so grossed out. Actually, I should do it in an American voice or something. Especially since you've had training. Yeah, yeah. well, okay. This one wants you to cut to something racy or a camera pan up and down the body to cover up your oh, naughty bits. Oh, God. I can't, I can't even listen. <laughs> This just makes me feel so uncomfortable and it just feels so creepy and predatory to me. And uh, the book is described as a sexually charged dark thriller caught, uh, as a couple gets in, uh, caught up in a twisted web of seduction and violence. Anyway, so that's that story aspect of it. 
And then um, in the article I'm reading, there is a picture of the pay scale for, you know, um, depending on how many followers you have. Yeah. So the the lowest amount they're offering, if you had three to 5,000 followers as a book talk influencer, you get $100. Oh, we've got more than three followers. But it goes up and up. And it's into, as soon as you get to 100,000 followers, it's into four figures, so over $1,000 and then goes up in increments of every 50,000 followers you have. But do we know whether this is standard, whether publishers pay booktokers just, you know, for normal reviews I, on booktok? I couldn't say for certain, but I, I, I get the impression, because in last week's bookseller they were talking about how booktok has driven $500 million worth of sales. Yeah. That... I suspect that this is actually a thing. Um, much, much like Instagram um, influencers are paid to uh, recommend products. Yes, but I've never heard of it with books before. But I think the fact is that in book talk terms, you, they don't, they're not obliged to say this is paid promotion. Mm. So this is, again, another area where, you know, I suspect that they are getting paid to do it. And if this is the sort of, a pay scale that this guy is prepared to go to to get his book promoted, then you've, that suggests that it's not unusual for book talkers to expect a certain level of payment. Well, that's us out, out of it then. Well, absolutely. And I think that, you know, this is this is really pernicious. I mean, everyone's talking about, oh, book talk, well, how brilliant it's been to influence and whatever. But something that we've been discussing in the indie press network which has really taken off in the last couple of weeks in terms of communication between the different members and we're, we're in almost daily contact yeah. with, with different uh, members of it we should mention but, it's, it's a discord group that we've set up yeah, so yeah and i i quite like discord i've never used it before really, it's much much better than than the other platforms for, for, for just that sort of being able to pick up a thread it's basically a message board yes it's a message board but there are categories so well, I don't think you can do that on things like WhatsApp, can you? Where you say, no. right, on this message board, we only talk about awards. On right. this message board, we only talk about marketing. Yeah, it's been a re- really revealing week, actually. And, and and what's been so refreshing is that this is, I mean, just to remind you what the Indie Press Network is, um, it's got 40-odd members. It was set up by Will Renard. Um, Will Dandy. Will Dandy of, of Renard Press, <laughs> sorry. Um, and... It aims to bring together publishers with less than five employees in the UK together to share ideas, inspiration, woes. Um, well, everything. Possibly, you know, collective bargaining on certain things. Um, and it's been very refreshing because we've all been honest with each other about the troubles that we've been having. And it was remarkable when we said, look, you know, I wrote a post about the number of times in 2023 where we considered whether, you know, Hobeck could survive and indeed we have survived and we're, we're now in a slightly better position than we were. But everybody came forward and said, yeah, I thought about packing it in. I thought about packing it in, you know, it became too much. My partner, you know, and I split over it and all this sort of stuff was going on. So, you know, it, it's not just us using this podcast to reflect the difficulties that, that faced us, in a cost of living crisis and a, the rising prices of, of publishing and all the other things that were going on. Um, you know, it is across the board for the, these micro presses that, uh, that we're now, you know, sort of in, in league with. And that was fascinating, but book talk has come up 
in discussions and people saying, oh, does anyone use BookTok? And actually, no, no one does because it is a pay-for-play platform yet again. Yeah, so they did talk about this and just how difficult... Well, it was a couple of them had said they tried to use BookTok, but as as a publisher, it's I think it's pointless posting as a publisher yes. to get sales. Yes. I mean, it's fine to post to um, show your brand and to entertain, but you're not going to get any sales through BookTok at no. all. No, no. So, you know, that that's that's fascinating. I mean, look, a lot of let's not just sort of dwell on the negative. I mean, there's been a lot of positive um information passed between us as as publishers in terms of, you know, finding better p- print solutions. Oh or, yeah, we've look, know, we've got some ideas, haven't we for oh, that? Yeah, so. you know, it's been really really helpful in the marketing and all sorts of things. Um, you know, just sort of things that we hadn't or, or firms we hadn't considered printing with or things like that. Just really interesting information and i think that the other thing which you cannot underestimate is the power of sharing shared experience between you know essentially 40 companies who work in largely in isolation recognizing that there are issues and themes common to all and that you're not alone yeah and it's incredible how much we have in common a lot of us work besides running our companies a lot of us work from home a lot of us have storage issues like books in the kitchen somebody was talking about putting them under the beds um and also we're sharing the positives like you said it's not all negative like there's there's a a message board for uh things good things that happen and people have put on covers that they've had awards for and somebody was um, invited to give a talk in abadabadabadi and you know (laughs) abadabadabadi and I put about um, our uh, Henshaw Press. So this is our bit of good news for the week. So we count, we counted up the money that we'd made for Henshaw Press, the Henshaw Press short story competition in 2023. And it was only three of, three of the competitions of the year. And we raised over £400 for a school in Worcester called the Christopher Whitehead Language College and Sixth Form. Who desperately need to restock their library, and so that money is going to them. And we're going to visit. We're as going well. to visit soon to um, to celebrate. I mean, it's a small contribution, but you know, it all counts, and it's uh, purely profits from a competition which gives authors an opportunity to be, you know, scrutinised and indeed uh, get their, you know, for the winners their work published, and uh, you know, it's all positive and. We thank all the people who judge these things because they're doing that for free as well. So it is, um, it is. You know, we don't take anything from it. You do work very hard on it to to to, to make it work, and uh, you know, a modest profit. But nonetheless, it's going to make a significant difference to what they can stock yeah, in their library. And I know it's yeah, it is a modest profit, but it's something. It's positive, and the the school were lovely, absolutely lovely when I told them about it, and they're yeah. so happy. And which moves um, us on to. Um, that particular aspect of what we do, which has been at the core of our application, you've spent a lot of time <laughs> on this this week, uh, applying for the National Book Awards or the Nibbies. Nibbies, yes, because it's a nib, isn't it? The pen nib. <laughs> yeah. um, so I think it was Monday or Tuesday when uh, it, it was actually the Discord group. Somebody mentioned on the Discord group, is anyone else applying for a Nibby this year? And I thought, oh, yes, the Nibbies. And I looked it up, and we have until the 1st of February to apply. So we didn't, we didn't have much time. And I started on Monday thinking it would be done by the end of the day. Oh, no. <laughs> I, spent, I spent all week 
and in fact yesterday I finally submitted our submission so you you have to um provide a document of 1500 words and it can contain anything you like so you can put statistics and graphs and all that sort of thing in it or you can put text and bullet points or images but it's just your submission to try and convince them that um you've had a good year in 2023 now that has been hard and I think that's across the board all the other publishers in the um, discord group for the indie press network are saying the same thing so I've actually said that there's no point applying because we've had a, such a tough year we've got nothing we haven't got enough positive to say about the year and in a way I thought the same for us but actually I managed to find quite a lot of positive things really to well. say yeah you didn't spin it um, no, no, not at all. So, no, no, no. you know, we we signed a Dagger-nominated author up in 2023. That's uh, Julie Anderson. That's no mean achievement. The Henshaw Press, again, no mean achievement at all. Um, yeah, there was there were, there were some glints of positive. I mean, I think that, if, if nothing else, you, the application demonstrated our tenacity and our desire to keep going in difficult circumstances. And... You know, I think that should carry some weight. I mean, the trouble with a lot of these awards, particularly at industry level, it's all about, oh, well, we signed such and such foreign rights deals and such and such, you know, blah, blah, blah. and all very well. But I don't think that it's a fair reflection of our end of the industry. But I think that the, 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 what's coming through from the Indie Press Network um, conversations is that, the, you know, the general feeling that everything is against that side, you know, our side of the business. Mm. Um you know, from attitudes of retailers, of the rest of the publishing industry, the awards criteria, you name it, it makes it very, very difficult. And then, you know, on top of that, prices went up in terms of the cost of actually getting product into people's hands. So <clears throat> it, it's not been easy, but, you know, what shines through in all those conversations is a, a, a bloody-minded will to keep going <laughs> yeah. and, and belief in what they're doing. Um and uh, and I, I commend everybody, you know, for that and also for their honesty in sharing the information as indeed we have as to what's going on. And I think that it has personally, I can say <clears throat> that my contact and um, response to what's been published and, and, and interacting in this way has been incredibly positive. It's actually very, very empowering for us uh, to see that we're not alone. And that there are people out there who are all offering, you know, support to each other yeah. in different different ways. That together, as I've said before, I think this offers an opportunity for this side of the publishing industry to rise. If we if we are strategic, if we um, pick our targets and collectively work together to get the message out. Yeah, and I think there's going to be a period um, which last week reflects of getting to know each other and conversations before we are able to do anything actively together. So, yeah. you know, it's it's sort of, I think we've got to go through that mm-hmm. um, to understand what we need from each other. Absolutely. And then we have offered the podcast. <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, we, we do expect that in the next few months you'll be hearing from members of the uh, Indie Press Network. Um, as, and they're authors guests, too, maybe. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, we have a platform and we're very happy to share it. Um, and I'm sure, uh, as listeners, you'll get tons out of it. Well, let's um, let's move away from the news and let's get to our interview. And uh, as we mentioned, um, we met Daniela Blechner um, 
at London Book Fair, we just sort of there was a IPG drinks evening, wasn't it? And yes. uh, um, Daniela and uh, one of her authors were, were, were sat there, sort of slightly sort of out of the um, the main hub of of the IPG. And so we just started, you know, we made eye contact and had a chat, and we got a fantastic little interview from them as part of our coverage of that London Book Fair. And uh, Daniela um, is sort of quite recently come to publishing, but she's worked as a teacher for 15 years. She's uh, an entrepreneur as well. And her drive and desire is to find as many voices who need, you know, with she believes everybody has a story and that it's her job to make it possible for them to have that story heard. And it's a very... It's remarkable, actually, the range of, of, of books and genres and, and topics that her publish, her writers have, have, um, have covered mm. and, indeed, that she's managed to, to get published. It's, uh, it's an extraordinary story. So let's talk to Daniela Blechner. Well, this is a departure for me, Daniela, so please be kind because I'm on my own this week for the first time ever in podcast history. But, uh, Daniela Blechner, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Lovely to see you again. Yeah, it is lovely to see you again too. And it's what eighteen months, something like that, since we last met at uh, London Book Fair. Um, we were wow, at the IPG again? drinks, and um, I think true for for you, and I think for us was we were feeling a little bit. It wasn't, you know, we weren't feeling very comfortable in that environment for some reason. I don't know why. I mean. <sighs> I enjoyed meeting the other members of IPG. That was my first time being at London Book Fair. But there was something about that. It just felt very, I mean, it'd been two years since lockdown. And it was the first time going out and, and being part of London Book Fair as somebody on a stall having an exhibition. But what sort of jumped out to me was the, the lack of diversity within that realm and just a little bit of the air of, what word can I use? What, what word would you use, Adrian? <laughs> well, I feel there's a certain hierarchy um, in publishing. Mm. And I think that despite the fact that the Independent Publishers Guild has that title, it's reflected in the way that we were made to feel in that environment. There was a sort of certain superiority of the people, the publishers who'd got the resources to pay vast sums of money to have a little stand there and a couple of folds folding seats mm. um some of them very very approachable and lovely but at the same time i just didn't feel it was for us that we were mm. kind of like the poor relations i don't know if that's how you felt i can definitely relate to what you're saying i mean i, I love to be able to fit into different environments and to to be around different sorts of people but in terms of that level of hierarchy i definitely did feel that um even going there as an attendee, I got that vibe of if, if you haven't got a meeting, if you haven't got there, there, there isn't much scope for chance meetings or for having down to earth conversations with people who can advance you forward in the world of publishing. That's my personal perspective. And I know a lot of other people felt that way, too. And on top of that, also being, you know, a black woman. I am very cognizant of the fact that I, I could literally count, I think, on two hands how many other black people that were there or people of, you know, colour. Um, I did have great conversations with people like yourself, with other indie authors. I made some really good contacts. But again, it, it did give me that air of if you haven't got X, Y and Z, 
then there's like there's a barrier there for moving forward yeah and uh, you know we've, i can only imagine because you know rebecca and i um demographically fitted into that bill but at the same time we felt you know outsiders and if you don't have exactly that thing feeling of imposter syndrome imposed by the fact that there are so many people hurrying between meetings and um looking very very busy you know, busy <laughs> empowered um entitled i felt you know there's a certain yeah. look to the publishing yeah. international publishing community and that doesn't even get you started on when you're walking past Penguin Random House or HarperCollins and their mega structures and, you know, their uh, uh, tame baristas providing copious amounts of beautiful coffee where you have to queue up and there's nowhere to sit if you're just a member of the intendee group. So it, it, it was difficult. But um, I guess, we're you know, in a way we're coming to the point of, why you created Conscious Dreams Publishing in the first place, which was exactly that feeling that you, you as an author and others were not being represented properly. And that's mm -hmm. been a very big part of your motivation. Definitely. I mean, it was never really in my remit or my my dreams to become, to do what I do, being a book coach or to as an indie publisher. My dream was always been to be a writer. That's my first and foremost, what I love doing. So I set up the sort of company that I would have loved to have had when I was looking, you know, at the self-publishing routes. Initially, I did look at the agent route. I did go the agent route. I had some really good feedback. Um, but again, through those rejections, by hook or by crook, because my first book was actually a collection of stories from other people, very empowering stories, I had to get it done because I promised them I was publishing the book. Um, and so I published my first book and that became quite successful. I started having radio interviews and getting some press. And from there, I had lots of people coming to me saying, wow, like, how did you do this? I've got this, you know, everyday people with amazing stories of overcoming like huge things with great voices. Some of them were brilliant writers. Some of them weren't, but just needed assistance. And there was a common theme at, you know, this is back in 2016. A lot of the, the demographic were black women. Um, some of whom, you know, I spoke to some women who had uh, were, were represented by agents. And this is a long time ago. And they wanted to change names like Abiola to Susan or to water down their voice or to water down their story and take away, you know, the, the cultural aspects to make it more commercial. And so there was a running theme that I was really getting to see around that time of women who didn't fit the dominant culture, not being heard, not being seen, not feeling visible, not being valued. And I started to help them as a labor of love, you know, get their stories out and to, to learn about the publishing process and, and to have their books out there. Um, and it, it really started from there. And I've, from there, I've published over 300 authors from array, you know, diverse authors from different countries, different cultures, different backgrounds. And not only have I learned, but I've just had my eyes opened quite a bit to to what is still missing from the publishing industry. Yeah, I mean that's that's a heck of a lot of titles and a lot of people to be involved with. So where <laughs> do you find time for your own writing in in all of that? That's a very good question. <laughs> <laughs> well, weirdly enough, I I have actually published my ninth book. Um, you know, I, I initially I wanted to you know be a, a children's author. 
the first book I published was a relationship book, which is obviously completely different to children's <laughs> I've then gone on to write eight other non-fiction books. Um, but in October, I published my first children's book, which I really loved the fact that I gave myself the time to do it. I did it in a very short time frame. Um, but the big book that I'm working on, which is my children's, it's my middle grade fantasy novel that has been in the pipeline since before I even set this up, probably about 15 years ago. Yeah that's the one that I'm you know really taking some time away to focus I'm actually going away next weekend I'm doing a writer's workshop retreat but I'm actually staying in a hotel so that I can also give myself time to focus on the book because I think that balance is important isn't it yeah oh totally totally because you've got to have your own creative well I think it's, there's a limit I mean we find this too and you know I'm kind of stuck on a project I've been working on for years um that it's quite hard when you're running a publishing company, especially the, the level of publishing and involvement you have with all of your authors and, and you're coaching many of them or bringing very young, you know, in fact, kids of that middle grade age who are writing books and you're bringing them yeah. to, to market, uh, which is fantastic. Um, Thank you. There's only a certain amount of you can keep giving and not have the chance to fulfill your own creative ambitions, I think. Yeah, I think we're definitely the same in that respect. I was actually thinking about this today. It's like, okay, I'm working on someone else's novel. I'm like, yeah, I love, you know, I can see how things can be pacey and how it can be structured. I'm giving all this feedback and I'm thinking, wow, um, I should also be doing this for my own book because I yeah. recently had a, a manuscript submission report um, by someone who's amazing, uh, by Beck Stradwick, who's amazing. She used to be an editorial director at Penguin Random House. And this was about two, three months ago, I've had that feedback and I still need to go back and implement that feedback and refine my manuscript myself. And it's just having that, giving yourself that time and finding that balance I'm, I'm struggling with. Well, I think that's true. I mean, sometimes we feel, Rebecca and I, when we're doing our external work from Hobeck, that we have to give ourselves permission to get back to the business because, you know, we're doing the freelance work that we do keeps a roof over our head and feeds the kids. Um, and sometimes that can be all consuming and it feels like we're, you know, there are pockets of time where we, we find time to do the Hobeck stuff. Um, and we feel terribly guilty about this, but, you know, in, we're trying to get that balance, but you're pulled every which way. I mean, partly that's of your own creation because you've taken on all these different yeah. aspects of publishing and, empowerment and finding people with a voice who need a voice or need help with to to share their voice you know those are all things that you're passionate about but at the same time it gets in the way of what was your day job in a that, way that's the thing yeah i guess my real, real passion I'm, I'm passionate about both of those but i need to remember i set this up because i'm an author because i'm a writer because i wanted to um you know get my own work out there and, and help other people along the way and it's finding that balance I think um maybe they're all distractions to me writing my own book <laughs> don't put well, that in <laughs> I mean I, yeah there are times when I find try and find an you know I use it as an excuse not to get back to my own manuscript um yeah. and then I then I start it's it's a bit like my relationship with cycling um, I'll go through a period of 18 months where I can't be, you know, you won't find me off a bike and then suddenly whatever it is gets in the way and I stop and then I make excuses for not getting back on it. But then when you do it, 
same with writing, you feel an enormous, oh, that's what I've really came into this to do. Exactly. And, you know, that that feeling. But at the same time, it's very seductive. Um, feeling, the, getting pleasure from seeing other people mm. being brought to print and being successful. Yeah, you're right. It is this feeling of, it's like these highs, especially of our youngest author, Tiana, who we were talking about before, yeah. off air, just seeing her success. And I especially love working with young people, so I'll, I'll pour a lot of energy into that. And I just love seeing their self-esteem rise and seeing them get out there and getting their interviews and working with other people on their books and helping them do things they never thought possible. Um so like you say, it does become, I think seductive is quite a good, good word to use. Yeah, when it's going well, it's really seductive. When it's going when, well, when it's going well. Yeah. Well, look, look, I mean, when we first met, you were in the company of Jasmine, Jasmine Beverly, who wrote right. The Unseen Veil. And yeah. uh, that was a really, I mean, she she was great. And what a, a brave thing that she did, which was to talk about her being trapped in an abusive marriage. Yeah. And you, you've got you know, someone like her writing something like that. And then you've got Tiana, who we've just mentioned, writing something as an eight-year-old and getting published as an eight-year-old. Yeah. Um, something aimed at her age group. Uh, forgive me if I get the title wrong. Is it My Afro? That's um, it, Twin Best Friends. My Afro, Twin Best Friends. Yeah. Twin Best Friends. So an empowering story, uh, which is, you know, representing people like Tiana, she's writing for people who, uh, for, for a wide audience, but particularly for little girls like herself, because they're not yeah. represented in, in, in literature otherwise. Yeah, I mean, the reason she wrote that book, she came to us first, when, she says, when I was young, so she's nine now, she came to us when she was seven, she published when <laughs> she was eight, I know it's hilarious. And she had six ideas, and she had this book called My Afro, and I said, that's the one. I think this would be really empowering for, for young girls, especially girls like myself. I grew up wearing, being the only one in the class with a big afro. Um, and she wrote it because somebody made a mean comment. It made her feel very self-conscious. And she told herself she's never going to wear hair out in an afro again. And then a few years later, she decided, no, I'm going to write a book about it. And she was very clear she wanted to empower little black girls to love their Afro hair, but also, like you say, for a wider audience to talk about and celebrate our uniqueness, all of us, all of our uniqueness and, and individuality and unite through celebrating that. And that was her that was her aim, really. And it was just meant to be, you know, a book. Obviously, but <laughs> it, it just took off. It really, and it didn't take off yeah. straight away. It was like the, uh, maybe about nine months later, um, somebody found me on Twitter and said, we love the work you're doing with authors um, in terms of representation. Can we interview you in a few? We had the interview on Zoom and suddenly it just went everywhere. I had BBC calling me, ITV, and then a company called Mrs. Wordsmith that she mentioned in her, her initial interview, uh, which is an educational resource uh exercises cards that young people can use and they thanked her for mentioning mrs wordsmith and then said we'd love to sort you out with some north american pr and so they did everything they got her onto good morning america the kelly clarkson show on and this is just from finding me on twitter my use my least to use platform i i don't feel like i have any friends there adrian we're friends on there i know we are i don't feel like I, it's not where i'm i'm most active 
and so you never know who's going to find you and when and, and what what you can do oh that's that is a wonderful story and um now she's uh that bit older uh more it- mature and able to see things you know the publishing industry for what it is um any more of those ideas that she had now in development or She's taking a rest at the moment, but I think she has some more more ideas that will be coming to fruition soon. Oh, she she is an inspiration. If you get a chance, folks, to go and have a look on social media, indeed, you've got some links to to her story. She's uh, she's fantastic, but I mean that illustrates the breadth and the eclectic nature of of conscious dreams and and the people you've attracted and worked with i mean you know all sorts of age groups all different backgrounds um in terms of stories different genres as well i mean mm. we're talking about non-fiction fiction all sorts and so yeah. you know we often worry at hopeback that we're you know that we're too broad just dealing with four aspects of crime literature but yours is much broader than that so it, that must that has its own challenges doesn't it it does um we publish, we start off with personal stories, personal stories, memoirs. Uh, we work with a lot of entrepreneurs, transformational coaches, health and wellness coaches like my sister who published a book through us. Um, so they were, they were our first audience and then it kind of just gradually grew. Um, we had quite a lot of people then wanting to write fiction or wanting to share their story in a fictional way. And then it became fiction. And I'm a, you know, I love story. I love fiction. I, you know, I'm writing fiction and we don't take a lot of fiction. It's, it's more non-fiction, I would say, but then we started taking, you know, a great grip and compelling story. I mean, you know, they, they take a long time to edit and to develop and, and work through yeah. the, the, the long projects. Um, and we started, children's books in 2007 2018 I think was our first one and I'm a former teacher so I love working with young people and I love children's books it's kind of the the first book I thought I'd write but it wasn't um so yeah they're they're the main books for us really we've got the the fiction side the children's books and the non-fiction adults and some poetry but that's (laughs) a vast range of of different things in, in terms of you know how you present a children's book is completely different from how you present your poetry or yeah. your non-fiction you know um inspirational life stories and, and things like that so uh you know hats off to you um but you must have learned huge lessons over those years you know broadening the palette of conscious dreams Definitely, uh, definitely in terms of just making sure you've got the right team, (laughs) especially when it comes to editing. So I wouldn't, you know, we've got editors who are like brilliant at fiction or sci-fi particularly, and some editors who are just know exactly what they're doing. Well, (laughs) you'd hope they (laughs) would do their editors. (laughs) You know, editors who are just absolute wizards when it comes to the adult non-fiction books. So it's just finding the right people and assigning the right, core team to each project is is the biggest thing really yeah but then managing all those projects all those different streams you know uh books take different type you know there's different times in terms of how long it takes to develop and get something ready for print mm. um how do you juggle all that because uh i'm very lucky i have my own personal um she's not with me right now but <laughs> i'll pay tribute to her so she doesn't have to blush I mean, Rebecca is amazing at, at spinning all these plates. And sometimes 
one will start wobbling and she'll feel terrible remorse, but she's brilliant oh. at, at, at managing all these different aspects. How do you do it? I, I genuinely have no idea. so i think i was trying to be realistic with authors you know sometimes when we have the submission process and something might come through i always ask them you know what's your proposed due date your due date um anyone who's saying to me you know they're submitting a script in november and saying they want it out by christmas you could burst that bubble right away (laughs) you know give them realistic time frames already i kind of really try and think ahead you know, add on a lot more time than it's going to take um but often think about trends or days or national days that it can tie into for example we're working with somebody now who had an idea for a children's book months ago um it's to do with uh grandparents and it's grandparents day in september so i can give it that long lead up time we can start now and so yeah. we're not rushing work through that project and then know that we've got all the promotion and marketing ready for September, as opposed to, you know, let's take a project and yeah, it's going to be out in 90 days. <laughs> yeah. I I talked to you when we talked last, I asked you a question, which I'm going to repeat it perhaps in different form, but um, while we were in the sort of the vortex of London <laughs> book fair together. Um, and at that point, particularly two years ago, the traditional industry was waking up to the fact that it it was underrepresenting mm. people of color in in terms of authors particularly and there's been a big drive um certain publishers you know they've been uh, taking submissions only from certain demographic groups mm. or launching award schemes to try and encourage you know how do you feel about it now, two years on? Do you, I mean, I, I detected a little cynicism about it. You know, you've been doing it at the grassroots end. Yeah. And yet um, the traditional industry have been trying to play catch up during yeah. that period. Do you think it's, uh, they're doing it genuinely now? Have they made progress? They've made real, pro- do they understand who they're trying to publish? Or are they still trying to find people from a different demographic that fit the traditional mm. author bill? Yeah, have otherwise. I think you've got to look at each organisation as a separate entity, and each agent. Um, it's difficult to kind of say as a as a whole publishing entity. Sure. But I mean, one thing I can say, I mean, that was in what twenty twenty two. I remember in twenty twenty with the George Floyd movement, if we can call it a movement, there were suddenly lots of agents who were you know on Twitter saying that they were closed and for queries. But now you know because of this. We've realised there's a great demand and now we're open just for, you know, we're going to take on two black people, two black writers. <laughs> I literally yeah, saw yeah. a post like that. You know, some are, gen- some are genuine have been doing this for a long time. Some are, you know, it did feel like a bit of a token, tokenistic and bit of a bandwagon, to be honest, a trend, which feels quite wrong, if I'm honest. Um, and if we look at statistics, there's actually been a 20% drop of black authors since 2020 which the numbers show it's not because we're not here it's there was this huge surge in 2020 when it was re- when it felt relevant why has it gone down if it's not still relevant that's something that should be growing right yeah so what what i did love seeing was i think it might have been harper collins but certain organizations offering um work experience or placements for um marginalized communities 
because they recognize that the people who are working within that infrastructure they need they need to have the foot in the door they need to have the workforce that represents not just black people but you know every facet of you know diversity it, it needs to be reflected in, in workforces obviously you've got to have the skills but you've got to start somewhere because even now when i'm looking for agents um because i am looking for an agent for for my children's fantasy novel i go on and i look at the the workforce i look at who's the highest up and i i very rarely see any diverse faces so it's mainly you know white women it really is and then you have some and they, they say they're looking for own voices or they're looking for diverse voices, which is all well and good. But why is the workforce not reflecting those diverse voices who can actually really connect to the authenticity of those stories and those authors coming in? Mm. You know, I've submitted manuscripts and things have been, you know, written you know, purposely in, in, in Patois dialect. Yeah. And sometimes it, it's not hitting home because <laughs> there'll be questions around it. Or, oh, do, do you mean this? Or do you mean this? So, no, I mean what, I, what I've said, <laughs> you yeah. know? Yeah. So I don't know. I, I think, you know, I, I'm not I'm not totally negative about it because I'm seeing a lot more opportunity, certainly than there was, you know, when I was growing up, a lot more in terms of culture and diversity reflected. But again, looking at children's books, I think the figure from the CLPE is 7% of main characters in children's fiction are from, and I hate the term even, and this is something that needs to change, B-A-M-E, yeah. age of minority ethnic, because that in itself is discriminatory because you basically just, just call us non-white, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. A, a kind of general, generalistic term. Um, and again, how do you break that down? So yeah, seven percent of those main characters are you know, B A M E using their term um, characters. Uh, that's not good enough. And and the same in terms of illustrators, um, children's illustrators as well. That number is extremely low. So mm. whilst on the surface it looks like things are changing, there are more diverse books coming out. I think there is still a lot more to be done, and I think it starts with the workforce. Yeah, I take your point. I mean that's. But, uh, but unfortunately, publishing has a reputation where the only people who can afford to get in at a, you know, a, an entry level job are people, you know, with money behind them because the cost of being in London, which is where most of the industry is, mm. and the fact that the pay is so risibly, terribly low mm. um, and the demands made of the people. And, and as you say, culturally, they're not really looking are they so they've got there's a whole load of reasons why it's very hard to change the demographic at any level in publishing mm. but i think that in a similar way that i experienced at the bbc where we made a big effort on diversity and i had a very diverse team that personally that i built um it you know you had to start thinking in terms of is it possible for somebody from a certain background to be able to move to where the work is and mm. actually be able to afford to live because we weren't paying enough so they put the pay up thankfully eventually they yeah. realized this was a, a, an impediment to entry unless mummy and daddy were helping out yeah yeah it's tough it really is so in terms of when you find someone who comes to you um 
and your 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 role as a mentor and developer of authors. Um, take us through that process because I'm I'm fascinated. I mean, it's something that that we try to do with our authors to develop them from wherever they are. But from your in your case, you've got people who perhaps are going to struggle to to you know the nuts and bolts of actually getting the words down is going to be a challenge mm. let alone adding the polish afterwards yeah initially when we first started it was about you know having a first draft and working from there but I, I do offer free 30 minute consultations I was speaking to so many people who had amazing ideas but had no idea how to get it out yeah so there's a range of different ways we work with people um I mean next weekend I have um my writer's retreat coming up and it's for those who've got an idea and just really need help with structure. So my my one of my skills is helping people to really unpick their message, understand what that message is, um, and their audience as well, helping them really understand who they're because there's no point in writing a book if you don't know who your target audience is or how you're gonna, you know, get them with that message, and then helping them to structure the book before they start especially people who are writing life stories <laughs> yeah. you know in your mind you think it's easy because it's your life like oh yeah I, I know my life I don't need to plan but there's so many different facets that you can go off on tangents and you can start talking about one thing and then you realize the message is completely lost in everything mm. else that you've spoken mm. about so what how do you streamline it so it's really making sense and, and hitting home and connecting to the reader so we help authors in that way I have a, a team of editors um, they offer manuscript assessment reports, absolutely brilliant, especially with fiction. Um, what I do, thinking about moving into, and I have helped a few people, is help coming up with book proposals. So some people, not everyone wants to be to self-publish, some people want to still try the agent route, and so we can help people to put together really hard-hitting query letters, um, help them to refine their first three chapters. So we do offer things like that, but it's just working with self-publishing, uh, self-published authors is helping them to think about the end game because a lot of them, you know, you might come across this as well, publish a book and then not have an idea about how to market it or what's next. Yeah. And, you know, that's even for yeah. authors who are traditionally published, a lot of them are doing a bulk of the, the marketing themselves. You, you yeah. can't be invisible in the market. No. And that's a constant theme on this show um, is how, to, how do you break through and, 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 and develop that? Um, I think it's reached the point, though, where I need to bring my ghostly partner in and to <laughs> ask her a random question, if I may. So hopefully, through the magic of technology, this is going to work. But what we will hear is a little bit of preamble between she and I, and then you'll get the question. Okay, looking forward yeah. to this. Okay, so let's hear from Rebecca. So most of my random questions come from something that's been on my mind. And this, I've been thinking about this week, it's about reoccurring dreams, because I have quite a lot of reoccurring dreams. So I want to know, do you have a reoccurring dream? What is it? And what do you think it means? Very interesting. I'm very much into dreams, hence my company being called Conscious Dreams Publishing. Um, I can tell you a dream, a recurring dream I used to have I used to have a recurring dream of being in a car because I I'm also uh I have dyspraxia which means sometimes it's difficult to judge distance um 
Anyway, that's one of the things. So one of uh, the dreams would be I'll be in a car and I'm I'm trying to drive it, but it's not quite working and it's getting out of control and it's spinning away and, and maybe it might crash. I don't I never let anything bad happen to me in the dream. But the car is definitely out of control and I don't feel like I can really manoeuvre it at all. Um, I'm 44 years old and I still don't drive. So and I don't think I ever was. I, I say that I I was born to be driven. That's my excuse. But <laughs> <laughs> I just, I just, it's just, it's not for me. I, it's not unless it's racing cars, um, or go karting. But recently, last month, I actually had a dream where I was in the car and I was driving it perfectly. It's like, what's happening? It just felt so smooth, and I knew exactly what I was doing. So I'm wondering whether it might mean that during that period in my life, maybe I felt out of control or I didn't have a handle on something. And now that I'm able to drive the car, maybe it feels like I'm headed in the right direction. But I still don't want to drive. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's funny you should say that because my dream last night was I was driving my family's old caravan and then my dad's old Volvo. And I lost control. And for some reason, I was going up through a sort of wooded area on a track and people had pitched tents, which is this is supposed to be a sort of, uh, you know, an access road. And for some reason they pitched their tents. Anyway, I lost control of the car down on a slope and it, the caravan dragged us back down. And I took out a tent and some poor family and they weren't injured, but they were pissed off. And I drove off, you know, hit and run kind of thing. I don't know what that was supposed to mean. Um, but yeah, yeah it sort of <laughs> Occasionally, I get that dream. I I unfortunately have reoccurring BBC related dreams. All right. Yeah, from my old job, and part of the 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 thing is that uh, because I was a uh, at one stage a bulletin newsreader, um, and pretty much everything I did in in the BBC was you know to uh, you know we were reaching deadlines, so you know bulletins programs go out at a certain time, everything has to be ready by then. You're always under time pressure. And I still have those dreams where I don't have the scripts and I'm going in to read a bulletin and I haven't got my scripts. The audio doesn't work. And on occasion, I'll be naked, naked in that dream. That's, it's the same as the, you know, the old naked dream. And you put the whole thing together and it's just a cataclysm of, of horrendous pressure. And you wake up in a cold sweat kind of thing, you know, shortness of breath, heart pumping. I still get those. Um, yeah, well. It's interesting you say that because I used to have those dreams about teaching sometimes, like going yeah. into the classroom and being totally unprepared, not knowing what I was doing, everything going wrong, the kids going from one classroom to the other, and I'm like, hold on, I'm just setting up my PowerPoint, and then the PowerPoint doesn't work. I have occasionally had the naked ones as well. I'm not in the classroom, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we should go and see a dream therapist. <laughs> well, it sounds like it. It sounds like it. Certainly Rebecca should, because um, the things that she say, shares with me in the next morning, she'll say, oh, I had this dream. And it's, they are extraordinary. Wow. Um, but I think it probably comes with a creative mind as well. So yeah. I think we should pat ourselves on the back on that front at least i mean there's there's so much you can work through dreams the dreams can really inform us as to like our our, our state all the, the things that are going on in our subconscious but also just a way to work through all the yeah things that processing and putting out there to the world absolutely no they're very important and um i didn't you know i'm sure every author that we have ever interviewed i think we've touched on dreams occasionally but um that that phenomena of three in the morning 
having had a vivid dream that sounds, you know, sort of the perfect story. You want to get it down. Yeah. And, and it just goes pop and you can't quite oh, yeah, capture the spirit fine. of that. Oh, and it feels so real, doesn't it? And you're just oh, like, yeah. no, stay in that state. It's, yeah, it's almost like that world is the real world and this is the fake world. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes feels like that. So, Daniela, um, thank you so much for your time. Where can people find out more about Conscious Dreams Publishing and what you do? Um, we can head over to my website, which is www.consciousdreamspublishing. I'm available on most platforms under Conscious Dreams Publishing. Um, yeah, and I offer free 30-minute consultations, which you can book via the website. Fantastic. It's been a real pleasure to see and speak to you again. And um, let's stay in touch. Definitely. Thank you so much for the interview. I really enjoyed it. I hope you liked that little touch of me recording the random question for I, Daniela. I, I did. <laughs> I did. But I'm, I... Um... I missed you. Oh, uh, you know, because it, it's a completely different dynamic. It's very much. I mean, I'm used to doing solo interviews. Yes, I've of done course. that all my career, but um, somehow there's an alchemy and a chemistry that you and I have. Yeah, and and it brings out different aspects of. You know, uh, each of us will think there's a sort of a rhythm to our interviews where I will just hold off, wait. So that you jump in with something sometimes, yes. and I can tend, I can tell when you're about to ask something because you sit forward a little. Yes, I do. As a sort <laughs> of vis- there's a sort of visual and physical cue. Yeah, and I didn't have that this time. So no, no. Um, I, I hope the interview didn't lose anything for that, but it was just different. Yes, um, hopefully not too many solo interviews because we don't want to do them solo, but circumstances. No, absolutely, had other ideas. it's been you know, and circumstances are really. Well, we're time pressed at the moment. I mean, you've got loads of jobs. I've got loads of jobs on. And um, I've got still family issues that I'm dealing with, with my dad back in hospital, uh, sadly. And, um, you know, hopefully getting, you know, on top of what's been plaguing him since he had his heart operation. Yeah. Um, so that's time pressed. Because if I go up north to see my well, mother and day. my dad, it's, yeah. it's a, it wipes out a day. Yeah. I mean, I'm spending at least four hours on the road. Um on you know on top of any visit aspects mm. so it, it is it is um it is difficult but uh we are pedal to the metal in terms of the amount of work we're doing at the moment between us yes um but it's it's still manageable and i i love it because i've there's so many different things that i do i might be doing the writers and artists yearbook for a couple of hours in the morning and then doing my work with um at Croyd publishing which is um rachel mclean's um Company. Well, I ought, to, I ought to mention that I am now part of the Ackroyd you are. family now. Yeah, we're working myself. together in two comfort, two different... <laughs> yes, yes, in two different capacities. Um, but uh, as of last week, Rachel's asked me, Rachel McLean has asked me to uh, run the um, audio and visual side of the business, um, you know, as a consultant and, and actually practically putting stuff together, uh, which I'm delighted to, to accept and very excited to be part of the, the project. And um, I'm sure between us, we're going to learn loads. Oh, I've I've already learned an awful lot from working with Rachel and her team. And it's, it's really... I love it. I absolutely love that No, work. it is great. And it's it's now expanded quite considerably um, since you were the first signee. Yes. Rachel promised me a T-shirt. Uh, employee number one. <laughs> Even though I don't think I am, because um, there's a um, sort of a, um admin 
mm. PA, a uh, virtual PA help she gets. And I know she's been working with Rachel mm. longer than me. So I think I'm number two, really. But, you know, what what struck me, I mean, I, you know, we, we, we talked at length about what she needs from me. And it was interesting to note that uh, Rachel recognised that my experience in, in that area of audio and visual stuff, having worked in television and radio and whatever, um, I was able to spot things that needed to be done very quickly now it was all sort of water off a duck's back to me mm. but you know you, f- you forget that for people outside of that sort of experience um and part of the industry it, it's it, it can be quite confusing and and uh, quite technical and, and needs you know so it was gratifying to to have my sort of uh, my knowledge to sort of chime yes and um, different from publishing yeah Absolutely. But I know she was very grateful because she said it would have taken her hours and hours and hours to mm. do the research you did in uh, a much shorter time. So yeah, well, I've, I've, I found it very interesting just doing the research, you know, afresh, knowing that, you know, there's a certain target and an aim that we're trying to achieve mm. and looking into the marketplace as to what kit there is out there now, as opposed to what I was, you know, buying in for the BBC and my department yeah, well, a few years ago. I bet it's changed it's, quite a lot, hasn't oh, it? Significantly. Um, and, you know, and I was thinking, God, back to the times when I was there, you know, what we would have done to have that piece of kit available to us then. Mm. Um, it is remarkable what you can do now, uh, which would have been, you know, you would have had to build, you know, huge infrastructure to achieve. Nowadays, it's, you know, it's, you can do it with your phone, essentially, and a, probably a couple of bits of add-on. Um, it's it's just incredible. It is, it is. So, so. That, that's very exciting. Uh, and you get to come on the away um, overnight stay we've got uh, in March. Yeah, absolutely. Going to Dorset, um, <laughs> which is very exciting too. So thank you to Rachel. And, um, you know, it's, it's you know, a, a validation of what we do. Um, and what I would say is, you know, just thinking on the first month of, of the new year, mm. just how much more, uh, because of uh, external validation, I suppose, from from authors, from potential clients, um, from indeed Rachel McLean, just how much more confidence you and I have got in ourselves because people recognise what we can offer yes. and are coming to us. And that is really refreshing because 2023 was a year where we doubted ourselves hugely and we were facing you know there were conversations where people doubted what we were doing and all that sort of thing you know naturally because it's just very hard to predict how things are going and we were having to adapt to a vastly changed you know landscape absolutely so the beginning of 20 if i think back to january 2023 how i felt then and how i feel now there's a big difference yeah for sure so yeah. So, uh, yeah, it's, it, you know, we, we emerged from this podcast, episode 158, um, with, you know, the feelings that, that were positive. And not least because... Not, oh, Tinkerbell. Tinkerbell, cat number two, is having a little doze. All I can see left. is a, a, a f- bit of fluff of white and from I, here. I have, you know, in, in my life, there have been relationships which have really changed things overnight. And this is one of them. She's been with us two weeks exactly, and she is a joy. Um, she is sort of an empathy cat. Whenever I've had a wobble this week, and there have been a couple because of, as I've mentioned, my dad and, and you know, bad news coming from the north, um, she's always popped up 
at that moment <laughs> and offered, a, you know. But she's a soulful cat, isn't she? She's a very soulful cat. So, uh, you know, that's a, that's a lovely and positive thing. Anyway. Uh, and the cats are getting on better. Just about. They're getting closer and closer. They're not quite comfortable with each other yet, but they they get to within two metres. Less than that, actually. Really? And yeah. eyeball each other and then occasionally... A little hiss. Think about, will hiss a bit. But anyway, it's it's getting there. And indeed, it, we're getting to the end of this show. We are. So thank you so much. Who is our guest next week? So our guest next week is a thriller writer called Roger A. Price. Excellent, excellent. We'll look forward to talking to Roger next week. But uh, don't forget, in between times, take a look at our website, www.hobeck.net, or indeed www.archpub.net, which is our publishing service, services arm. i try and get my teeth back in. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we, we hope that uh, you have a, a, a wonderful and smooth week. Oh, it's I mean, a new one, a smooth week. Yeah, or indeed, a wonderful and creative week. Bye-bye. You've been listening to the Hobcast from Hobeck Books with Adrian Hobart and Rebecca Collins. You can find the show notes at our website, www.hobeck.net. You can also use the exclusive Hobcast discount code for any of the products at our Hobeck online store. Just enter the code HOBCAST20 for a 20% discount. Don't forget to subscribe to the Hobcast and feel free to contact us with any feedback. Until next time, remember our motto, Trad Values, Indie Spirit. Indie Spirit.